Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan. And I'm Christopher Van Dome. And you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Chatham House Africa programme. Listeners, welcome back to Africa Aware. On this episode, we will be discussing the topic of mining in Africa. With the African continent home to numerous resource-rich countries, citizens in these countries are seeking greater social and economic benefits from these natural resource endowments. However, much change is needed in order for these resources to be leveraged in a manner that ensures sustainable development is achieved. The question is, how? To answer this question, I'm joined by my colleague Christopher Van Dome, who is a research fellow at the Africa Programme. So Chris, to begin, why is this topic so important? Thanks, Yusuf. This is a really important topic for African decision makers and international actors who are involved in Africa, who are invested in Africa, and who are looking to the continent and the growth expectations on the continent as it tries to pull itself out through a post-COVID-19 recovery phase. Africa has a significant natural resource endowment, and yet it has a declining percentage share of global exploration budgets, uh, and the industry has pockets where there are new operations thriving, but other places and big players on the continent where it's in decline. And there are some really significant questions to be asked here around how it is that African countries can make the most and best use out of their natural resource endowments. And there's some really big topics situated within this conversation, many of which get touched upon with our interview with Sheila Karma today. Some of those include, for example, the expectations of African governments, and particularly those that are encapsulated in the African Union's African mining vision, uh, which is kind of situated within the AU Agenda 2063 and touches upon some of the uh, issues within the Sustainable Development Goals and really looking at that issue of how is it that the industry can have a developmental benefit for societies. Now, within this, there's a really big question again around jobs. Automation within the industry is making the industry move beyond just a wage-based social benefit transfer model. And so there's a question there of how is it that societies, how is it that communities can get a benefit from the industry? And then within this, you know, what are those benefits? How are they generated? Who is responsible for their distribution? And how can they be distributed? And this ties into a notion of the social license to operate, which is the acceptance by social stakeholders for an operation to have a a legitimacy for its operation in a country. So the buy-in of social stakeholders to allow it to operate. And this also comes up in our conversation today. Finally, there's another big overarching issue over the industry at the moment, and that is around the environment. And at the top end, yes, the carbon emissions of individual companies, the carbon emissions of the industry, the demise of the coal mining industry in Africa, for example. We recently heard in one of our own events with the president of Malawi how they're making decisions around keeping the coal in the ground and looking for alternative means for energy generation. But this obviously has an impact also on the the mining industry. But beyond just kind of global emissions and carbon emissions discussions of mining are the immediate environmental impacts on communities and how it is that operations on the ground view the 
kind of whole of landscape natural resource management. So not just what's under the ground and what they're digging up, but who are the players at that local level who have access to the land, who have access to those natural resources beyond just you know the mined product. So there's a huge amount of discussion and debate within the industry, in particular in Africa at the moment, on some of these issues. And a lot of it's covered within other areas of, of our work. For example, we wrote last year around questions of African agency within the mining industry. We've got a piece in the world today looking at the opportunities available for Zambia to benefit from potential e-supercycle, you know, the the rise of electronic vehicles and renewable energy production, the effect that's going to have on copper mined in Zambia and can the country benefit from that. Other pieces that we've been working on around boardroom diversity uh, by Sheila Kamo and and we also partnered on a piece on political risk in, in South Africa. So there's a lot that we've been working on already and have hosted a number of mining ministers and economic ministers who have looked at some of these issues. But today's conversation with Sheila really focuses down on the crux of the matter, which is this relationship between governments and companies. Now, within this, there's a number of questions that she touched upon. Are they in competition or are they in cooperation? What are the channels of influence on decision-making on resource policy between companies and governments? And what's the source of tension within that relationship? And what are some of the solutions? Sheila also talks about China and whether or not Chinese firms in Africa are presenting an opportunity by providing African governments with alternative options, or whether or not they're repeating some of the exploitative patterns of past exploitation and mineral exploitation in Africa. And finally, within the interview, towards the end, she tackles this big question of what are the models of transfer beyond taxation? So getting back to that issue of how is it that the benefits are transferred and who is responsible and how can this be done beyond just a assumed taxation model? So there's a huge amount that is, is discussed, but as I said, really focusing down here on that key issue of the relationship between governments, African governments, and mining companies and operators within the continent and how this relationship can bear fruit and can deliver mine value and where the pitfalls are and why there are certain issues within the industry. Chris, thank you so much for such a succinct summary of this uh, complicated topic. And as Chris has mentioned there, there are so much more incredible pieces of writing and content on our website discussing this area for those of you interested. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks, Yusuf. Moving on to the interview, I was lucky to be joined by Sheila Kamo. Sheila is an independent consultant and former practice manager of energy and extractives at the World Bank. She also served as the director of the African Natural Resources Centre based at the African Development Bank. Across her illustrious career, Sheila has sat on numerous advisory boards and technical committees of international NGOs, UN agencies and academic institutions. Notably, the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network on Extractives and Land Resources, the United Nations Office of Operations, the Columbia University Sustainable Investment Centre, and the former Oxford University Natural Resources Centre. Thank you so much for joining us, Sheila. It's a real honour to host you on the podcast. 
Thank you for having me. I look forward to our discussion. It's a real pleasure to be with you. To begin on this incredibly wide-ranging topic, I'd love to know your thoughts on what the defining characteristics of the relationship between companies and host governments are in the mining industry in Africa. And actually, how would you describe the environment in which these relationships between the government and, of course, the investors are managed? Yeah, in many ways, that is the million-dollar question, because if you sort of understand it, then the assumption is that you can then manage things for the better. But the way I see it is that at the very top of that hierarchy of uh, the characteristics is that you have a relationship which is one that is necessary because the parties have an interest in exploiting natural resources. But in doing so, the parties have very different goals and different expectations of what the outcomes should be from this. And in many ways, it is this divergence of goals, divergence of expectations, and for that matter, divergence in the way institutionally that investors and governments are structured, which really sits at the heart of the foundation for the relationships. Most people think of these relationships as being made of victims on one hand and perpetrators on another. I don't think of it that way. I think of it primarily as a function of two entities driven by the same desire to explore natural resources, but coming to it from a fundamentally different perspective. That I think would be how I would characterize at a very high level, the DNA, if you wish, of these relationships. Sheila, thank you very much for that introduction and highlighting some of the, the key issues at that level. Just want to dig a little deeper on that then. When you, when you talk about how these parties need each other, what do you see as being the internal and external forces that give rise to tension in the sector then? And this tension that can periodically result in disagreement or, or litigation. What do you see as those key forces? The first thing that I think of in terms of what drives this tension is the nature of the relationships and how they come to be. In most African countries, the mineral laws typically grant the state the right to have equity in the projects that are developed by mining companies. By definition, that creates a very superficial environment of partnership. It's not a partnership that is driven by conscious strategic intent. You could consider it forced partnership. And so that's one of the issues why the relations become difficult because typically in the private sector, when two partners come together, because there is a perception of distinct strategic value that either party brings and a perception that that contribution by either party create an intersection of mutual benefit. You can't legalize relationships, not in the way that the mineral laws do in Africa. So this superficial nature of the relationship is one issue. The other, of course, which is external, is the legacy issues. So if you think about most large mining companies in Africa today, they will come from either the United Kingdom Australia, the United States, or Canada. Or for that matter, they will come from France and other parts of Europe. 
These are also the same companies that for the longest time during the colonial era flew their national flags and essentially were party to the colonial governments and benefiting from the administrative position and political power of colonial governments. By contrast, the Africans were not benefiting. And so these powerful brands, the countries of origin, are still seen very much as fostering, if you wish, uh, home country interests at the expense of host countries. And so when investors come to Africa and the African governments and their citizens understand these historic legacies, already you have a situation in which the point of departure is potentially antagonistic, if not outright mistrust. So those would be one of the two things externally that I think are crucial to this perpetual tension. Yeah, that's really interesting. Perhaps to go back on or building on that and also reflecting on the key dynamic that you outlined at the beginning of this mutually required partnership of how companies and governments need each other. Do the governments and companies view themselves as being in competition or as working in cooperation when it comes to actualizing the value of, of mine products? You know, this this relationship that you outlined is a acknowledgement from the two parties of the existence of these tensions and, and how do they manage that relationship? Because there isn't a conscious acknowledgement and instead there is the potential to fault and apportion blame. There isn't that acceptance of this reality that we start off in a position in which there is already historic baggage. And because there isn't a systematic acceptance of that, there isn't a systematic management of this environment. The other thing, of course, is that relationships evolve with time. My observation is that in the beginning, when there is a discovery, in that early stage, typically governments and investors are very enthusiastic because for one, the investors want to get the ore out of the ground quickly and begin to bring in revenue. Governments want to be able to say to their citizens, we discovered gold and we are going to get more revenue and do better for you. This excitement is a kind of a, a false honeymoon because after a while the dust settles and then people remember these legacy issues and then the challenges of how to manage the relationship uh, begin to manifest. At which point, unless people go to the drawing board and say, okay, what are we dealing with here? Then it becomes a vicious cycle of mistrust. Speaking of mistrust, it has to be said that the lack of trust in the private sector, and for that matter, the lack of trust in government doesn't help. Because if you look outward of that relationship and look at the stakeholders of either entity, they too uh, do not trust. And that adds an additional pressure on governments. And then with that pressure comes the temptation by either party to lay blame. So no, my sense is that they don't really see themselves as working together to iron out this tension. The tendency instead is to fall back and try and fault the other party, which tendency simply, in my view, worsens the situation. 
Once again, incredibly fascinating insight there. And I'm sure myself and Chris will dissect that a little bit further. But one area I really want to look into is, of course, as we as we now exist in the multipolar world, we spoke about the, the legacy impacts. And, and of course, the countries listed earlier were ones who were huge players. But other countries have come along, other countries have developed. And a great example of that, of course, is China. And I'd love to hear your perspective and your thoughts on, on the impact that Chinese firms and state-owned entities have had on the mining environment in Africa. Have they been positive in providing alternatives and choices for African governments, not wanting to engage solely with Western governments? Or has the environmental and the human rights record replicated that old colonial style you spoke about earlier of mercantilist exploitation? So China is a very interesting phenomenon for several reasons. For one, when the Western countries, especially the Europeans, not so much the Americans, because there there has always been significant mineral wealth. When the European countries came to Africa, it was really to fire up their industries that needed minerals. China is largely firing up her industries, but more than that, China is firing up a huge appetite for raw materials based on a huge market. But China comes from a position that is different because China herself, in more ways than one, is really very wealthy in minerals. China surpasses many regions of the world in the production of several minerals. So the Chinese dynamic in that sense is different. The second thing is that, as you rightly said, when we say China, we are looking at two things. First, we are looking at the sovereign state. And then we are looking at sovereign state-owned entities, and then we are looking at private entities. So my sense is that when African governments deal with China, they don't make this distinction. My sense is that China takes advantage of it. And in this sense, China is the same as the former colonial masters in which there's a blurring of the line between foreign policy, bilateral relations, and then investment in minerals. This is often rolled into one. And I'm not sure the African governments understand what that means for them when they then interact with China with a view to getting a better deal uh, than they feel they have hitherto got from the West. As far as the subject of human rights is concerned, I think you've got to look at how China operates in China itself. And so if you think of uh, Chinese state-owned entities and the way they operate in China, you can very comfortably translate that into how they behave in Africa and elsewhere. By definition, China, like every investor who invests in Africa, needs regulating. You cannot defer to the investor to regulate themselves, which then brings you to the question of whether the Africans have the capacity for oversight. So to put it another way, my view is this, that the presence of China is potentially an advantage for African countries because what it does, it offers them an option. And when you have an option, that strengthens your bargaining position. However, unless you have policies and strategies of how you exercise that option, then it will come to pass. My genuine sense is that China, in terms of a clear sense of what China wants out of Africa, is much better informed than the African governments are with respect to how they are going to make beneficial use of the availability of an option relative to, say, the Europeans 
all the Americans. And I think it is that conscious strategic ability by African countries to say, this is what China means for us, and this is how we're going to help ourselves. So far, my sense is that China has a better handle on that issue than the African countries. So, Sheila, when it comes to mining firms and their uh, engagements in Africa, whether they be European, North American or Chinese, there's a great expectation from African governments, African societies around the benefits that the mining industry can provide. And this is perhaps encapsulated within the African mining vision, but also kind of wide expectations of the role of the private sector and particularly of extractive companies in delivering or helping governments to deliver towards the sustainable development goals. But when it comes to delivering these wider benefits to society, who is responsible for ensuring that society benefits from the mining industry? And how can this benefit be delivered? So we've come a long way. It used to be that companies were expected to invest, reap uh, the rewards through profits, pay tax, and then that was that. It was considered sufficient. And then it was left to the host countries to do right by their citizens. But uh, thanks to the notion of uh, sustainability and the triple bottom line, it is now accepted that the investors have a moral responsibility to ensure that the impact that they have socially, economically, and otherwise is positive, both on the physical environment and the people in terms of benefits. But it is also accepted that the sovereign state de facto is the paternal figure responsible for making sure that social services and other and infrastructure is made available to citizens. Both entities then use the mineral wealth to achieve this. So to answer the question more directly, it isn't as clear cut. It isn't possible to say it is the multinationals or that it is the host governments alone. And that is why the relationship between the host governments and multinationals is so crucial. Because when the relationship is healthy, when there is that mutual understanding of the obligation to do right by the environment and by the citizens and the communities and all other things, then those benefits become manifest. But if there isn't that understanding and the tension ensues, it is the citizens in effect who suffer. And that's why it is so crucial that this relationship itself is healthy because if the relationship is healthy, the understanding on who does what and the acceptance of either to get on and do what is necessary to benefit the citizens becomes so much easier. But if the relationship is sour, when this game of blaming each other continues in perpetuity, in the end, it is the citizens who are left worse off. And so my sense is this, that a huge part of how the relationship should be shaped and structured is defining exactly the question you ask, who does what? If the company has paid tax, is that enough? And if it isn't enough, what else must they do? And if they have done that, will the government raise their hand and say, let them be, they have done their fair share. But the notion that the governments can have it both ways, take a big line share, of the process and then turn around and say to the companies, look at the communities, that's not acceptable. By definition, to the extent that the companies have their boots on the ground, 
impact the environment, socially and otherwise, and then say, no, we just pay tax. That also is not acceptable. And it is this very clear division of responsibility, which I think is essential for us to be able to ensure the benefits flow to the right people at the right time and from the right sources. If I may, just to follow up on that, to move from the idea of responsibility towards the idea of action, consumer pressure and international government pressure and attention on the industry with regards to its environmental, social and economic impact and these issues that that we've been discussing, there is external pressure on, on companies to demonstrate that they are making a positive contribution towards sustainable development. So what action must mining companies operating in Africa take to show that they're not just doing tick boxing and PR to show the world, oh, we're doing the right thing. But what action do you think that they should be taking to actually be doing the right thing and demonstrate that they're making a positive contribution towards sustainable development? So there there are several things. For one, it is important that mining companies form relationships with the communities in which they actually operate and not limit the relationships they form to just the host governments and the regulatory agencies. My sense is that it is also very important to understand and engage those communities in so far as is necessary for the investor to understand the needs of those communities. I think the notion of flying in and saying, we are going to build you a school without first knowing whether that is the priority have long gone. I think consulting with a view to ensuring consent by communities is an important one. But I also think that the manner in which companies report these activities needs to be taken a look at. When I look at whether it is uh, stakeholder reports or financial reports of mining companies, by and large, they are talking to themselves. They still speak a language that really does not invite the rest of the world into the tent. My sense is that we are still a long way from finding ways of taking our stakeholders inside the mining industry to understand how the mining industry works. So that when they engage us and criticize us, they criticize us from a position of knowledge. And I think if people understand increasingly the constraints that face governments and mining companies, this will likely increase the possibility of alignment in terms of understanding where the solutions may lie. I also think that being very selective about the kind of benefits that I delivered. I have started to worry about whether paying tax is the right thing. Tax goes to the national coffers and then it's up to the Minister of Finance. I have wondered increasingly whether a better way of delivering services is to focus on infrastructure, things that are tangible, that are immediate, that touch people's lives and less on merely paying tax and then leaving the citizens to argue with their government on budget priorities. I'm increasingly thinking that those non-financial benefits are probably a better way to go in terms of not only being able to tangibly demonstrate, but also be able to do that and do it quickly.
Okay, and that brings us to the end of the interview. Thank you so much, Sheila, for your fascinating insights into mining in Africa and how things can be improved both for companies, for governments, and of course, for consumers and citizens of the countries where these minerals are being extracted. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. that brings us to an end of this episode of Africa Aware. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do subscribe on the platform that you're listening to us on to ensure you don't miss an episode. And do leave a review as that will allow others to find this podcast easier. Thanks for listening to Africa Aware. I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye.